Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Welcome back to the continued coverage of the 1998 disappearance of then 19-year-old Troy Cook. In the prior episode, Where is Troy Cook?, Troy's father Tom shared the details of his son's life leading up to his disappearance and discussed his now 20-year search for answers in the case. During that episode, I made a point to focus only on the facts of the case rather than digging deeply into the various theories that have attached themselves to the story over the last 20 years. In tonight's episode, the second part of Where is Troy Cook?, the focus will zoom out and now feature a general discussion surrounding the case, including the speculation that now covers it like a moss. I didn't feel it appropriate to have this type of conversation with Tom or anyone else closely connected with the case, so I invited a fellow crime writer to join me on the show and examine the many moving parts along with me. You may recall a portion of the prior episode where I mentioned the media coverage Troy's disappearance had received, and I specifically called out my favorite piece as being one written by a friend named Bev Ketty. As his piece served as my true introduction to this heartbreaking story, and was so wonderfully written, I knew Bev would be the perfect guest, and as such, I invited him to record a conversation over coffee. Tonight's episode will feature that conversation with Frank Magazine crime writer, Bev Ketty. Before we jump into the conversation, I'll tell you a little bit about Bev Ketty. You'll hear him explain this a bit more in our talk, but just to put this in context, Bev is a writer for what I would say is easily Nova Scotia's most controversial publication, Frank Magazine. If you aren't familiar with Frank, it's basically a tabloid-style newspaper that has existed in Nova Scotia for as long as I can remember. Frank covers a lot of the more salacious events that the mainstream press wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. So things like prominent community members sleeping around, or politicians who get caught doing something embarrassing, or covering current events where they simply shine the stark light of their version of truth on the popular story of the day. Now given Frank's no-mercy reporting style and willingness to push the boundaries, they're often accused of slander and rumor-mongering, and not surprisingly, their editor, Andrew Douglas, has had to defend himself and the publication in court proceedings on multiple occasions. So to say Frank has a reputation is probably an understatement. There are a lot of people who absolutely hate it. Me, on the other hand, I enjoy reading it. And I imagine I always will, at least until the day I get caught stealing from a church or sleeping with a politician. So now to get to Bev Ketty. When one flips through Frank's pages, there's often a piece of crime writing that may seem a little out of place, and that's Bev's work. You'll hear him describe his articles in the upcoming discussion, but I'll sum it up by saying Bev Ketty uses his column in Frank magazine to provide a voice for Nova Scotia's missing and murdered. After reading Bev's past article about Troy's case, the story has been in my mind constantly, and as such, I felt it suitable to cover the story on nighttime. 
When I decided to do a part two to the story, including Bev Keddy was the obvious choice. So without any further ado, I'll now get to my discussion with Bev Keddy. But as a word of warning, you may hear the odd kids screaming in the background or various other noises that come with life. Rather than hiding away with Bev in a noise-controlled studio space, I instead decided to do this at my kitchen table. In my mind, the loss of sound quality is well worth the unexplainable effect a kitchen table and some coffee can have on a conversation. So to start, Bev, why don't you tell me a bit about the articles you write for, for Frank Magazine? I think a lot of people who know my show, they may know of Frank Magazine, but they probably don't realize what you're doing inside. So tell us a bit about your articles. Okay, well, for almost two years now, I've been writing a series of articles for Frank Magazine about unsolved murders and missing persons cases. Almost my entire life, I've had a keen interest in that subject. I have noticed for most of my life that there has not been, or there have not been, a whole lot of articles about local ones. And I always thought if I ever had an opportunity to do this on my own, I would do everything I could to speak to family members or friends or just people who knew the people who had gone missing or who had been murdered. And I've, uh, I managed to pitch that idea to Andrew Douglas, who was the editor of Frank. I was already doing a column for them about uh, radio news, like people who had been hired and fired from local radio stations and, and gossip and that sort of thing. So I pitched this idea to Andrew in May of 2016, about writing about uh, missing persons and unsolved murders. And for whatever reason, he said, yeah, go ahead and do it. So uh, almost two years later, I'm still at it. And now your focus primarily is on like the unsolved or or lesser known cases. So, and as you said, a lot of the work done on those cases is people just kind of combing maybe a couple articles or a police report. Tell me about the research you do, because your articles are so thorough and you always find new information on them. Or at least more complete information. Well, I start online, and I see what I can find there. And then I go to the Nova Scotia archives. I am there as much as I can be. I am combing through old newspapers. And um, I know it sounds uh, a little odd, but I am happy to find the obituaries of the people who have been murdered because uh, I get family members' names from that and maybe contact them. And if they're willing to talk to me, they can go on the record and I can get some exclusive information. So it's a bit of detective work. It's a sort of dogged determination. I have literally a binder that has all the cases I'm working on at any one time. And there must be 25 or 30 of them in that binder at any one time. So whenever an article is published, I grab those notes and I offload them to a binder of of uh, cases that I've uh, already written about. Very cool. Now, Troy's story is fairly well known around the province. I actually, I, I had heard kind of like the, the most basic version of it. It wasn't until I read your article that I really saw, you know, all the moving parts of it. How did you he- find out so much about Troy's story and, and what kind of compelled you to take this on as one of the unsolved cases you cover? Um, well, I've been knowing about Troy's case since 1998. And uh, it was just an interesting story for me, and I, I uh, found it compelling, as I do all of these cases. So I decided to um, 
go online to Facebook and there are a lot of Facebook pages about missing persons and unsolved murders. And I found the one for Troy Cook. I left a message on there saying I'm willing to write an article about Troy's case for Frank Magazine. Please contact me. I'm looking for uh, Tom Cook's phone number. Someone messaged me. So I got Tom's number and I I contacted Tom and he agreed to speak to me. So my wife and I drove to Truro one day in September of 2016 and um, and met with Tom and Mike and it was a very fruitful uh, meeting. Yeah, were you uh, were you you're representing Frank or writing for Frank? People uh, local to to Nova Scotia may be familiar with Frank and their reputation. People, uh, my listeners that aren't from around here may not realize Frank is seen as. I would say ill repute, more like a tabloid that covers, you know, gossip and even the uh, the editor Andrew Douglas. You read about him in court every so often for things he wrote. Do you find when you reach out to these family members, does your affiliation with Frank Magazine affect you in any way? Well, there is a perception that Frank Magazine is a gossip monger. I can tell you from all of my dealings with Andrew. And with the, the reporters there and the other freelancers, that they are interested in the truth. And sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes we report things that other people don't want reported. It, when you reach out to families, are they often like, whoa, you're with Frank, I want nothing to do with this? That, that has happened, yes. I, I, uh, I know you're quite happy either to write people directly or to pick up the phone and call them. And my inclination is to message them on Facebook or on Twitter or send them an email. And I first words out of my mouth or the first words out of my fingers on the keyboard are that I am who I am and who I work for. Sometimes they write me back, I love Frank Magazine, I love to talk to you. And other people just go crazy and they, they say, Frank Magazine, don't ever write me back, you so-and-so. <laughs> I, I am out there to tell these stories about the people who have gone missing and the people who have been murdered, and um, I, that is my focus, and I am focused on, on the truth and getting the story out there, and I have the full support of my editor, Andrew Douglas, in this, so I'm aware of that perception. In the past, I have had that perception myself, but getting to know the guys at Frank, I know that uh, we are out there to serve the truth and to serve the public. I, I guess uh, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, sounds yeah. good. Now, so tell me about uh, your experiences researching Troy's case. So you, you had mentioned you went on Facebook. You found the Find Troy Cook yes. page that yes. his brother Mike's the one of the administrators on. You got in touch with Tom. So just tell me a bit about when, when you arrived and, and met with Tom and, and Mike and heard the story. Just tell me a bit about that process. Well, we were given directions to um, Tom's apartment in Truro. We arrived there. Tom and Mike were very friendly with us, and uh, Tom was extremely forthright about what happened with Troy, uh, how he was, what he was like growing up, and I, I found Tom and Mike to be very generous with their time. They posed for photographs, and as painful as it must have been for, for Tom, we drove out to the area where Troy was living at the time of his disappearance, and I shot video as Tom walked down the street, he showed me, this is where I dropped off Troy. Let's go around the block. This is the entrance to the apartment building where Troy was living. And I shot video of all of that. That was helpful to my research. 
once again, I, I, my hat is off to Tom. He has told those stories a thousand times. And each time it's like ripping off a Band-Aid for him. I know it's painful for him. And I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Tom and for Mike and, and Lorraine. And I, I wish to, to God we could find an answer to what happened to, to Troy. Yeah. Now, the video you mentioned, you shared a copy of that with me. And I found it helpful where in the episode I did with Tom, it was hard to get across the fact that he dropped him off on a side of the building yeah. that didn't give him a view of the entrance. That's that. Right. Yeah, because there's a lot of discussion about whether Troy even made it in the apartment uh, or whether somebody was in the driveway. So in your video, you made a point to show, you know, you let him out here. So from here, you could not see the driveway or the entrance of the apartment. And he was late for an appointment. He was talking his car off for repairs. Tom was. So he had to pull a Yui in uh, what was then a vacant lot, which is now an apartment or condos or something. So I was able to show all that in the video. And uh, once again, that was just research for me. But I, I think that Troy made it into that apartment because his wallet was left behind. I mean, I know where my wallet is at this moment. It's hanging in your closet. And uh, I will check my coat when I leave here. I trust you and your wife and your children and everything. But I just, I, I, a, guy does, a guy just knows where his wallet is yeah. at all times. For me, it's almost an instinct. When I stand up, I, I tap my pockets. Yeah. To make sure, like, my phone's there, wallet's there, exactly. got my keys, let's go. Yeah. So I find it impossible to believe that uh, Troy would have just left his wallet hanging around because the night before he had been to the family for dinner and, and to watch a movie. I can't believe he didn't have his wallet on him. So I believe he got it into his apartment, he left his wallet behind, and something happened, and he had to leave suddenly. Yeah. And even, let's say, even if he did leave his wallet behind, let's say the night before he left his wallet on the table and goes with his dad, he comes home the next day, he makes it in. If he's going to leave again, like, cause he, cause eventually he calls uh, his employer from Tim Hortons. Half an hour later. Yeah. Half hour later, which, which is odd to begin with. But if he's on the way somewhere, he would have taken his wallet then. Yeah. He wouldn't just leave, you wouldn't leave your wallet for two days as you're going with your parents, going to yeah. wherever he went on the way to that passed by the Tim Hortons in Bible Hill. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a big question there and we'll get into that uh, in a moment, but with, with your story, when, when you put it out, tell me a bit about what angle you took. Like you, you told his, the story of, you know, the timeline and whatnot, but did you get into any particular theory or, or push it in any angle or tell me a bit about the end result of your article? Typically in my articles, I just tell the story as it is. I don't try to push too many theories and although sometimes, if I hear some theories, I'll pass them along. I, I really believe that it's the reader's decision as to where a story goes. It's the, up to the reader to decide, okay, there's some merit to this theory, and I, I maybe it's a theory I will put out there. Um, but I'm, I'm aware of libel laws and everything else, and I'm not going to say who did it if I know. Um, I don't think it's my place I, I just want to get the stories out there. Um, in my article, I mentioned the uh, roommate that Troy had at the time, a fellow named James Taylor. The police spoke to him. He had to go through polygraph. I think he passed the polygraph. I'm not really certain about that. And he wanted to claim Troy's guitars. And that didn't sit well with me. It doesn't mean that he was responsible for what happened to Troy, 
but it is true that later on he had to seek uh, problems with hit gambling problems. So I suspect he wanted to take those guitars and and pawn them for some cash. But that's that's and that's probably why he said that to, mm-hmm. to Tom. But I don't actually know that. Yeah, I, I think no matter what the roommate's involvement is or isn't, yeah. the fact that he would ask the father of a missing person for the guitars two weeks later, yeah. I think that kind of speaks to the type of people Troy may have been mid around. I, I just well, I couldn't imagine putting myself in a position where I would say to my missing roommate's father, I'm going to keep these two guitars. Yeah, well, Troy, Troy wanted me to have these guitars. Well, they lived together for three weeks. It doesn't even make sense to say that. But I, I think that that James may have been so hard up for cash and uh, wanted money so badly that he felt compelled to say that. I, I, I don't really know. But yeah. once again, I don't think James was responsible for that, for what happened to Troy. I have no, seen no evidence of that whatsoever. But I don't think I would want to have his, him as a roommate either. And I'm also considering the fact that he was much older than Troy. I think he was... 10 years or so. Yeah, so it was, it was about, a th- about a 30-year-old living with about a 19-year-old. Yeah. And just if you think of that dynamic, the younger guy going missing, and the older guy, he'd want me to have the guitar. It just, to me, it, not that I'm, I suspect him, it just it doesn't sit well. Yeah. And it kind of makes me question Troy's living arrangements and everything at the time. Because, again, just to, to, to go through the timeline, so it was about three weeks before he disappeared, yeah. Troy moved in with... This was a friend from his his job at the Atlantic Superstore grocery store. So three weeks prior to his disappearance, they move in together. Again, three weeks after that, Troy spends the night at his father's house, does laundry and has a nice meal. The next morning, Tom drops his son Troy off back at the apartment at about 10 a.m. Troy is never seen again. The only other trace of him is about 30 minutes later, that phone call that we referenced earlier where likely Troy or someone pretending to be Troy and pulling it off well phoned the Atlantic Superstore at about 10.30 from a, a payphone outside of Tim Hortons in Bible Hill. So I, I, Tom described that in my episode as about a 20-minute a walk away. Yes. Uh, basically, that phone call was just reporting that Troy's not feeling well and won't be at work that night. And really, that's the last trace of him. Yeah. Now, this was uh, his boss at the Superstore was named Sharon Tucker. She reported that Troy did not sound well, that he may have had a cold or something. Now, I don't know if about you, uh, you have a pretty strong work ethic, but if you were to call in sick at work, you you wouldn't sound chipper to your boss, mm-hmm. right? You, you would, I wouldn't say you would put on a show, but you wouldn't um, hide the fact that you were sick either. But from what I've heard, Troy was not ill when he was dropped off by his father then 30 minutes later he's calling from the bible hill tim horton saying i'm sick i'm sick i can't i'm not coming to work today mm-hmm. and uh, tom was speculating that uh, whoever took him away had promised him something pretty spectacular whatever that means that was the phrase that uh, tom used with me but so it may have been that he was taken away under false pretenses and said, no, let's just cover our tracks. Why don't you call in sick? But um, that could have been what happened, but why did he leave his damn wallet behind? Yeah, and as it turned out, there was a surveillance camera outside of that Tim Hortons that wasn't working at the time, and that would likely have solved the whole thing, which is a a real shame. Now, there uh, there was a report that about, I think, two days after that phone call, 
people, um, there was somebody who thought they saw Troy at a nightclub, but Tom discounted that, saying that they're probably just confused about the dates. I don't think it's likely that he was seen again. And as far as where he was going, it could have been somebody promised him something so good that he couldn't resist it, or maybe someone took him by force, but I guess there's no way to ever figure that out. That that phone call is just going to be left as, until Troy's found, left as a huge mystery. Yeah, now Sharon Tucker um, says it was him, but he sounded sick. And I think Tom believes that it was Troy who called, but we don't know. Like you said, we just don't know. Yeah, and Tom had mentioned when I spoke to him, if Troy had a, a reason to call in or whatnot, he would have had no problem, you know, on the on the drive home, be like, Dad, stop, you know, I'm going to make a phone call. Or he could have called from his father's house. So it's just, I think whatever happened to Troy, that phone call has something to do with it. There's a very small window because it's a probably a 15-minute drive from the apartment building to Bible Hill. So it was a 15-minute window during which... Troy uh, left, leaving his wallet behind, and they drove to the Bible Hill, and they said, well, let's call work from there. Because the uh, the superstore is a pretty easy walk from the apartment building. Also, I just think, um, as a 19-year-old who's into like the nightclubs and bars and all this, I even thought it'd just be weird to choose a Wednesday night as the night you call in sick. Like, I... I, uh, in my past, have lived a life where I would call in sick sometimes. I heard about you. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, it'd be, that'd be a Friday, a Saturday night, yes. not a Wednesday night. Wednesday night would be the night that I'd want to be at work earning some money. Just the whole thing just doesn't sit well. And I think we could use our imaginations as to what was going on that day. But I, I think something unusual was happening. And Troy was the kind of guy who had bills like anybody else and mm-hmm. wanted to make money like anybody else. And it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. So now... We, we can take kind of all these facts and kind of apply them to a, a billion theories. And I'm sure in your research, you've come across some theories. And even since releasing my episode, I've had probably 10 different theories presented to me. And to be honest, all of which were presented in a way that this is fact. Everybody in Truro knows what happened. Mm. Here's what happened. Don't bother looking into it. This is what happened. And I have, again, 10 different versions of, of that that all kind of contradict with each other. Did you have a similar experience in your research, like different kind of confident theories being presented? With the Troy story, yeah, you hear rumors. People say, well, this is what happened and, and Hell's Angels. And, and one theory that Tom keeps indicating is that when Troy hung around in those bars, he was... a you know, good-looking guy, and uh, he had no trouble with the ladies, and he wasn't a shy fellow. So maybe he was flirting with the wrong girl. Maybe uh, this girl had a boyfriend who was connected, and something happened as a result of, of that flirtation. I, I find it hard to believe that if I'm flirting with the wrong girl that the boyfriend would literally kill me. I find that hard to believe. Maybe say, stay the hell away from my girl. <laughs> but uh, I don't think it would ever go beyond that. And, and even if it did, I, would fi- I find it odd that 20 years later, the truth hadn't come out. Exactly. Because it would be, if that did happen, you would think it'd be a situation where it happened like outside the bar and other people saw it or, or something like that. And, yeah. you know, a few people would be involved. I, I can't see Troy hitting on the wrong girl, and then the guy kind of finding this secret way to track Troy down and do something where nobody knows. And I, 
and I don't see this as something where you know five other 20-year-olds from back then know and the story hasn't come out. Because again, over 20 years, relationships change. Something that may have been a guarded secret 15, 20 years ago is now you know someone may be comfortable cashing in. The re- There's a $150,000 reward. It's a lot of money. Yeah. So I, I, I paid most of my debts with that. Yes. Yeah. Geez. But that said, though, um, I talked to Tom about that reward. And to earn the reward, if you come forward with information, this is through Nova Scotia's major unsolved crimes program, you need to testify. So it needs to be, you need to be comfortable that you're going to be safe. And you mentioned the, the Hell's Angels as one of the theories. And I've seen Hell's Angels thrown around in, in this story a lot. And it may seem, for someone from Nova Scotia, they think of Truro as the small town, and they may think it really odd that the Hells Angels would have any interest in it. But with it being a hub city, there'd be a lot of drugs and yeah. crime passing through there, going between Halifax, Cape Breton to Newfoundland. Victor County. Cape, yeah, all, all around there. And there's no secret that there are bad people there. We can, there's actually right now, there's uh, just last week, a, a guilty verdict was handed to Les Greenwood in a double murder in Kentville. So he would have been around, and this, that murder I think was in 2000, mm-hmm. and that was an ordered hit, alleged ordered hit related in some way to the Hells Angels. Um, so there, there's no question that there is bad people there at the time who were involved in the drug trade and may have had their hands, uh, or, or may have passed through the Chevy's nightclub that Troy frequented at. Yes, and uh, I think I alluded earlier to the fact that uh, Troy liked to date the ladies, and the ladies liked him. He was dating a girl whose uncle was affiliated with uh, one of the motorcycle clubs, but that in and of itself shouldn't mean anything. I mean, it, it may mean that he met this uncle through a, at a family barbecue or something, but, I mean, unless you mess with them, they're not going to mess with you, and I can't believe that Troy would ever have messed with them. Like if it, if it's organized crime, why would they expose themselves by killing a nineteen year old? Nobody to them. Like a, there'd be more more bigger fish for them to fry and take the risk on. But but it does show that Troy at least had an arm's length reach to powerful criminal type people. Well, I think most of us are two or three degrees of separation away from that anyway. Mm-hmm. I probably know someone who knows someone who knows a person who's in. One of those clubs. Yeah. And I, I, this is a small province, less than a million people. It's hard not to know someone who knows someone who knows someone. But his connection was a bit closer. I think the story is that he was dating a daughter. Do- was it a daughter of... Was it, And do you know if this person... We won't say his name, but do you know he was a, he's a member of the Hells Angels? Uh, my understanding is that she, he was dating a girl who shall remain nameless, whose father or maybe uncle was in one of the motorcycle clubs and my understanding is this father or uncle is a member of a family that are all kind of loosely connected with it and they've been i know one of them died recently in jail but he's been implicated in at least two other double murders where he where he ordered a hit on uh, again two double murders that were in the hits were ordered uh or the people who carried out the hits were doing so to uh get out of a drug debt to him so these are these aren't just your regular bad dudes. These are really bad dudes. Exactly, and and there was no evidence whatsoever that Troy was involved with these folks, other than through 
him dating a girl who blah 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 yeah. right so that's it that's in and of itself doesn't mean anything and troy smoked a little weed according to his father um but it never went beyond that so he would not have had drug debts that we're aware of and he wouldn't have had uh, there was no evidence among his things that he had any kind of issue with uh, money or um or did a lot of drugs or anything like that. It was just there's just nothing there whatsoever that anyone's ever been able to find. One of the theories that I've heard is the, is the idea that Troy had committed suicide. I, again, I asked Tom about that, and he said no way that it would be completely against Troy's character and Troy's personality, and even Troy's friends in some of the old news articles were quoted as saying, "You know, happy guy, jovial guy." You know, it's. I think there's no question that su- that. Whatever happened to Troy, it was against his will. Yeah, I think so. Something about that, though, is that just because someone appears to be jovial and upbeat and positive, they may things may be roiling underneath. Yeah. That that and people just have that exterior. Mm-hmm. So there, it's possible he wasn't, but we didn't, I doubt it. Yeah. And further, if let's just entertain it for a moment, if he had killed himself. You've got no control over where or how your body is found. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and there's been nothing found in 20 years. So, how do you hide your own body, and or how do you accomplish this in such a way that your body is not found in 20 years? Yeah. So, I don't think he killed himself whatsoever for the reasons you stated. Yeah, and if and if so, why call your employer? Why would you get out of the car with your dad, rush to a payphone on the you know 20 minute walk away to call your employer? And it just yeah, it just doesn't doesn't sit well no it doesn't make any sense occam's razor applies to everything yeah now i got into this earlier but if he was a victim of foul play so if whether it's hell's angels or he hit on the wrong girl 20 years later do you think like at this point do you think this is something that'll be solved and do you have a theory that that you're leading to leaning towards um, I, I live in hope i try to be an upbeat guy i like to think that all of these will be solved at some point I don't think he's among the living. It could be as simple as someone down the road is, is uh, building a new apartment building and they have to clear land and maybe they'll find something. Mm-hmm. It could be something along those lines. But it won't be, uh, it'll be purely by accident that he's located. As for theories, you know, it's which way is the wind blowing. I, I, there were some mysterious aspects to it, um, a lot of mysterious aspects to it, but none of them really points to a solution. Yeah, there's just not enough to put you in any one direction. It's really just everything was going well. He disappeared and made a phone call. Yeah, that's the last. That's all we know. Those are the facts, and everything else is ethereal. Everything else is not not even uh, theory is too strong a word. It's a hypothesis and conjecture and rumor and speculation. Mm. And to muddy the water further, something Tom had told me is in Truro, uh, Troy's case has almost taken on this this mythical thing where people will say we'll use it almost as a threat, like we'll do to you what we did to Troy Cook. Uh, different, you know, bad people around town will say things like that, and you know, and word spreads. So as time passes, it's going to be harder and harder to to wade through all that muck if you're going to try to find out what's going on you're, you're being polite and calling it muck but uh i would use a stronger word but 
those people who say that are unbelievably cruel to to Tom and to Mike and to Lorraine. And uh, you're right, they are muddying the waters and they're jerks and they should stop saying those things. But I, I do like to think eventually that all of these stories will be told and, and all of these stories will be resolved. But um, one of the reasons you do the podcast and why I do the articles is to keep those stories out there for people to keep talking about and keep the discussion. And I think it's also important, like, like you said, reaching out to members of the family to get kind of, um, to just wash away all the rumor and just have, here's the facts and the story. And that's, that's what I tried to do with Tom is I intentionally didn't get into theories or speculations in that episode. I just have Tom tell the story of what he knows and, and what happened and, you know, let people make their own uh, decisions or, 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 develop their own thoughts on it if they, if they choose to. Now, where, where this case, is, it's well known in Nova Scotia, despite the fact that there's very little evidence or details of the disappearance. Why do you think so many people connect with Troy's story? And what do you think has kept this story alive for 20 years now? Well, the case with Troy is that this was, this was a nice guy. He had no troubles with the law. Um, just a, a polite, well-mannered guy who was making his way through life, and all of a sudden he was gone. And um, there's a lot of humanity to those types of stories because we're grown up to believe that if we do right by others, um, if we treat others well, if we work hard and we persevere, that we're not really guaranteed a good life, but there's a much better chance that we'll have one. And then we have things like this with Troy, who did all those things, and he still disappeared. So those sorts of things are cautionary tales for for all of us and and fly in the face of the things that we uh, believe in and hold dear. So I think it's the main reason why the story has resonated with people for the last 20 years, and I think it will continue to resonate for 20 more unless we find out what happened. Yeah. And Tom has done an amazing job of keeping it going. Like I've seen, I've read a, countless articles, watched countless news clips, and it's always, you know, Tom is pushing the story and keeping it in the light, so to speak. Yes, yeah, and uh, I was concerned that when he contact when I contacted him that he would not want to speak to me because he's spoken to so many people over the years, but he was um, enthusiastic about it. And in fact, when the issue of Frank Magazine came out, he wanted to buy as many back issues as possible so he could distribute the uh, issue to to others. And he he was so grateful to me on a personal level that he gave me a gift card to a, a restaurant. So it was totally unnecessary, and I didn't want to accept it. But I didn't want to insult him either. So my wife and I had a nice meal, and and we raised a, a glass to to Tom and to Mike and and Lorraine and to Troy. Yeah, I had a similar experience when I, I got his contact info from you, actually. Yeah. I had emailed him. He emailed me back the next day basically saying, like, can we meet this weekend? He wanted to drive up from Truro and take me out for coffee and not to record or anything. He's just like, I just want to tell you the story and tell you about my son. And But, yeah, just completely enthusiastic to tell the story. And, like, how does that compare with other stories you, you've covered? Because you, you contact so many families of missing or murdered people. Like, does Tom's reaction and his enthusiasm to share the story, does that compare well with the typical family you would reach out to? Well, like I said before, there's a perception that Frank Magazine is out there to destroy people's lives and, and to 
um, engage in gossip and, and rumor mongering. And um, once I tell them that I'm there taking the story seriously and I want to talk to you about your, you know, your husband or your father or whatever it was in the case, and they realize that I'm really serious about this, I, I can help to overcome that perception that they may have. And there were people who love Frank Magazine. They, they've been subscribers for 30 years, and and they uh, they avidly read my articles, and, and they're delighted to speak to me. So Tom is uh, in that second group of people who like Frank Magazine and who don't have that perception. And uh, he's been, uh, I guess, a good friend and, and a, a really good source to, to speak to about about his son, and uh, I think that it's key to solving these uh, mysteries to have family members who want to talk, because I have dealt with family members who wanted me to pay them. They wanted me to give them damn money to speak to me. I've, I have dealt with family members who say, yeah, I'll talk to you, but I want to have the, I want you to sign a contract that guarantees the wording of your article. I've dealt with people who told me to F off. I've dealt with people who are passive-aggressive about talking to me. They'll say, yeah, I'll talk to you next week, and next week comes, eh, I'm not busy. So they keep putting it off. And it just seems to me that the, the cases that get the most attention are the ones that are kept in the media and the ones that are kept in the media the most are the ones where the family members and the friends cooperate with the media as much as possible and certainly certainly pardon me i agree with that 100%. yeah so tom is has been a strong proponent of, of dealing with the media whenever possible i think he actually advocates with the media let's see it's been a while since there's been an article since there's been an article about troy to be toxic thank Bev Ketty for offering up so much time and his support in the creation of these episodes covering Troy's disappearance. As far as both crime writing and hairdos go, Bev, you are truly one of Nova Scotia's best-kept secrets. I'd also like to thank Frank Magazine editor Andrew Douglas for allowing Bev to participate in this episode. Now, to anyone out there who knew Troy personally, or anyone with a close connection to this case, I'd love to hear from you and invite you to share your thoughts on the case in an upcoming episode. I'd especially like to speak with James Taylor and Sharon Tucker. If any of you listening know them, first explain to them what a podcast is and then let them know that I'd love to get in touch with them and respectfully talk about what they remember about Troy's case. Now with that said, we will conclude this episode of the Nighttime Podcast. If you enjoyed the music you heard during this episode, it's a short piece of the great new single, Sunny, by the Canadian ambient pop duo Paragon Cause. You can check out the whole tune on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'll add a link in the show notes. If you're interested in hearing more content, please check out the Nighttime Patron Group, where for $1 a month you can support the show and access the supporter-exclusive bonus content. You can join up by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. 
And for anyone else who'd like to support the show but is unable to do so financially, you can help by telling your friends about the show and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or the equivalent. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on and off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at nighttimepodcast.gmail.com. So until next time, keep looking around and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.